Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today under pressure, so turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Faith and Action. Well, we all know the difference between intellect and doing, between theory and praxis, or even between faith and action. And we all know that there, there's supposed to be a connection between those things, but we know that the connection doesn't always happen. And what I mean is that people may know some things, but then don't act on that knowledge. Well, here's an easy example. Let's say you have a degree in economics, and therefore you have all the theory in the world, things you've memorized and understood about money, and you've never put it into action. I mean, you should be a rich man or a woman. But it might also be that that you've never crossed over the divide and used the theory that you've obtained and make it work in practical ways. Now, all of that is especially true when it comes to our faith. You know, it's been said that many of us are educated far beyond our obedience level. And I often think about that when it comes to the, you know, the very many sexual scandals that have occurred, not just in the general population, but also among those who claim to be followers of Jesus. That is to say, even though the Bible is so very clear about holiness to our God, you know, a great many of us can't get there in our own lives. So 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16 talks about that. So let's read our text, and then we'll consider what it's teaching us. So our text says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So our text begins with the word, therefore. Now that word, wherever we find it in the Bible, is a signal that we're supposed to connect what has been taught before to what we're learning now. That is, one teaching is to lead to a certain conclusion. So let's remember where we were in our study of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is written to a group of believers who are facing persecution, as well as other pressures from a pagan world in which they lived. But said Peter, look, you're the most advantaged people on earth. You're God's chosen pilgrims. You, by God's grace, were born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. In short, for you, death has lost its sting. You have an inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and unfading. And even the trials you're suffering and the ones you're presently enduring, they're designed by God to purify your faith so that you're being perfected for eternity. I mean, just think, says Peter, how privileged you are. Now, I hesitate to say that's the theory. Now let's go to the practice because you know what Peter has taught this group of believers is so much more than theory. This is the very real future that lies before all of us who are exiles on this earth, followers of Jesus. We've been redeemed through that once and for all sacrifice by Christ. It's not theory. It's reality. But the point that Peter wants to make is that we can't end there. And that's where the word therefore comes in. Since, says Peter, that's what I've been teaching you is true. It demands that this truth work itself out in some very real and concrete actions. And so in the verses that we've just read, Peter gives three commands. Now, I won't give you all the grammar, why I think there are just three commands here, but I I think there are. 
The first command in verse 13 is the command to set your hope fully on the second coming of Jesus. The second command in verse 14 is to reject the passions that dominate the culture in which you live. And the third command in verses 15 and 16 is the command to be holy. Now, these three things are the actions that your favorite status as a Christian demand of you. So let's look at each one of the three in turn. So first, set your hope on the second coming of Jesus. So let's read verse 13 again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, you will notice there's only one imperative, one command in this passage. It starts with the words, set your hope fully. Now, the earlier words, preparing your minds and being sober-minded, I mean, those are participles or descriptors as to how we get there, how we come to the place where our hope is set firmly on the second coming of Jesus. So let's follow Peter's argument, shall we? If you're to set your hope fully on the second coming, you're going to have to be preparing your mind for action. Now, unfortunately, that's not a literal translation. The literal translation would have said, gird up the loins of your mind for action. But because that's such a hard phrase to understand, I mean, our translator simply wrote, prepare your minds for action. Yeah, it makes it simpler, but it also obscures what Peter wants to communicate. Look, in the ancient world, men wore dresses and not pants. And so if you're going to walk really fast or you're going to run or even sprint, you know, as you might do in the day of battle, your first task would be to gather your robe, pull it between your legs, and then tie it firmly around your waist. And that wouldn't get in the way for the you know, vigorous activity that you're doing. That's what Peter's communicating. Get your mind so ready that you don't allow anything else to get in the way. Now, that notion of girding the loins of your mind has a First Testament background to it. Do you remember God's instructions to ancient Israel? when they were to eat their very first Passover while they were in Egypt. See, Exodus 12, verse 11 says, In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Well, that idea is that when God delivered Israel from Egypt, it would happen quickly, and they'd have to be dressed for action to respond immediately when that day came. So in here in 1 Peter, Peter wants Christians to have disciplined thinking so that they're ready to quickly respond to anything that the Lord tells them to do. Now, the second descriptor Peter uses is that of being sober-minded. Now, normally we think of sobriety as being free of drunkenness. But even though the Bible describes drunkenness as a sin in this case, well, Peter's not speaking of it in literal terms. I mean, to be sober-minded is that one's mind is clear of those things that might cause it to be dull to the reality of God. See, in Peter's view, the mind of a believer can become drunk by attractions to this world. We can be drinking in the alluring culture, and that promotes rebellion against God. I mean, think about movies that promote sexual faithlessness or crime or the attraction of earthly riches of any lifestyle incongruous to Christ. And yet we relish those movies, we feed on them, and then we become mentally drunk or mentally impaired. We can't make proper judgments. Now consider the opposite of that. See, the sober-minded person is very aware of the things of God and won't drink anything that dulls that awareness. You know, resist the devil, 
Don't lose your spiritual consciousness. Reject things of the culture that hinder that. Discern things through Scripture, through the mind of Christ. Now, as we have seen, all of this is leading to the command to put your hope fully on the second coming of Christ. See, in both of the descriptors as to how to do that, Peter has been concentrating on the mind. The mind must be ready for action. The mind must be free of intoxication with the world. And as Peter sees it, that's how you set your hope on Christ's soon return. So let's carefully examine the command. Peter calls the second coming of Jesus the grace that will be brought to you. And he uses the word grace because his readers must fully understand that they're unworthy of the future rewards they're going to receive. Their sins are forgiven. They've received a new heart. They were born again. They no longer fear the wrath to come. They fully anticipate the coming of Jesus, and that's grace. They don't deserve that. Now, how important is it to remember that word grace? It reminds us of our unworthiness and of Christ's lavishness. And so in the midst of persecution, concentrating on your reward, while Peter says, set your mind fully on what's coming. When Jesus is revealed from heaven, make sure that in your thinking and in your decision-making, it continues to have that as the final goal. Now, before I move to the next command, stop and reflect. Many Christians are this worldly. We suffer and we think of it in terms of the effects in this world and not in the one to come. We go through a season of temptation, and we deal with that only in terms of our wants in this world and not in our desire for the one to come. See, Peter says, set your hope fully. See, one of the reasons I wrote the Heaven and Hell book that I wrote is to help believers get all the information that they can of the world to come to imagine it and deeply long for it. Now, you want to go through hardship well? Then think of the world to come. Now, here's Peter's second command, and this one builds on the last one. The second command is that we should not be conformed. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, notice the first qualifying phrase. It's an assumption. As children, we are children of God, and as children, we are obedient to our Father. Obedient children do what the Father commands. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315 or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult. Some of us don't understand the word to conform. So let me see if I can help you. To form is to mold something or to shape it. 
To conform is to willingly shape ourselves. See, in this case, we're not to be conformed to something that's in the culture around us. Don't be in harmony with the society in which you live. Now, let's take it one step at a time. First, Peter tells his readers not to be shaped by their former ignorance. And that has to do with their pre-Christian past. And since Peter knows that a great many of the Christians who are reading this letter are Gentiles, that would have been an especially poignant reminder. Let's see if we can find other places in the New Testament that indicate the culture out of which these Christians came. So, for instance, 1 Thessalonians 4, 4 4-6, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as he told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Now, here we get a combination of the expectation that we're obedient children and that the Father is an avenger of those who transgress a fellow Christian by being in a lustful relationship with them. And here's Paul's point. In the place you learn that this kind of passionate lust is acceptable, well, that's in the wider culture around you. If everyone in the culture were convinced this was unacceptable, people would be shaped by that way of thinking. Well, getting back to Peter, the passions or the sexual expressions that were a part of your former way of life, Peter says they're ignorant. He means that the pagans were ignorant of God's intention for the human body. Of course, the body is given to sexual desire. That's that's undeniable. And that's the reason why Paul, writing to the Corinthians, gives direct instructions to husbands and wives in regard to their sexual relationship with each other. Chapter 7, 1 to 5, he counsels married couples not to deny each other, not to deprive each other of sexual relations. And that's the point. God gave the gift of sexual intimacy to give emotional and spiritual intimacy in a lifetime commitment of faithfulness between a man and a woman. What they share with each other is only for each other, and it binds them to each other. And it's out of this loving intimacy that God brings the next generation into the world. See, the ignorance that Peter speaks about is ignorance of the Creator's design. Instead of using the gift that God has given in the way that the Creator intended, they give themselves to passions that will ultimately destroy. And says Peter, don't be conformed to that. Don't be shaped by that. Don't be molded by that way of thinking. Instead, he began the sentence with the words, as obedient children. So let's stop and let's talk about obedience for just a moment. See, all Christian believers are required to do God's will. And the way some people talk these days, I mean, you'd think that believing, well, that's required, but obedience is optional. But that's not how the New Testament speaks. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, which many argue is the centerpiece for the doctrine that we're saved by faith and faith alone. Well, listen how he begins the book. Romans chapter 1, verse 5, notice what he says. He says he's bringing about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. Or listen to how Luke describes the steady conversions that were happening in the early church. Acts 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Watch this. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Yep, they were converted. And by being converted, they became obedient to the faith, to the teachings of the faith. 
Or you might think about what James wrote, James 2.19. Even the demons believe that doesn't save them, James says. Or think about what John wrote in 1 John 3, verse 6. He says that no one who keeps on sinning abides in Christ. And for that matter, go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, which is the introduction of this book. We are given, said Peter, for obedience to Jesus Christ. See, that's it. Faith in Jesus is meaningless if it doesn't result in obedience. So when it comes to sexual passions, please understand, if you disobey your Lord on this matter, you're in danger of losing your soul. We need to be teaching this. Now, those Christian leaders didn't slip up. They made a shipwreck of their faith, and now it's not certain whether we can rescue them again. Of course it's possible, but that needs to be said. All right, we've been talking about the outworking of faith that we have, and we've said that in our short passage, Peter has given us three commands. First, set your hope fully on the second coming of Jesus. Second, resist conformity with a culture around you, especially in regards to the intoxication of sexual passion. Now, here's the third command. Be holy in the same way that God is holy. Look at verses 15 and 16 again. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And the idea is simple. According to the way, or in the manner in which God is holy, you be holy. Now, we will get to that in just a moment, but please also notice that Peter uses the word called. The one who called you is holy. And we go through 1 Peter, we're going to notice that this word called comes up another four times. Chapter 2, verse 9, we're told to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. Chapter 2, verse 21, we're told that we were called to follow the example of Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 9, we're told to bless our enemies and then reminded that this is what we were called to. And finally, in chapter 5, verse 10, we've been called to an eternal destiny. Now, in 1 Peter, the idea of calling is made to mean so much more than that God took the initiative when we came to Christ. Now, it's true. God did take the initiative when we came to Christ. But in 1 Peter, the calling is the calling unto something. When God called us to belong to Jesus, he also called us for some specific thing. He called us to be lovers and forgivers of our enemies, to walk as Jesus did, and so forth. And here for the first time, Peter uses the word called. He uses it in reference to holiness. We were chosen or called by God for a purpose so that we would imitate the holiness of God. That's why God called us. Now, as I've said, the idea of being holy as God is holy requires some time to unpack. In essence, when we speak of the holiness of God, we mean that God is both separated from sin, well, he's separated from everything in all of creation, and what God is, is to be emulated in some fashion. Now, that's a First Testament concept. Now, consider, for instance, the fourth of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and did what to it? He made it holy. You see, to make the seventh day holy is to make that one day unlike every other day of the week. Or think about the holy of holies in the tabernacle, then later in the temple. 
You know, it's that one space of ground on this earth that's unlike every other space of ground on this earth. So why is God called the Holy One of Israel? Well, for several reasons. For one, God is unlike all the gods and goddesses of the nations around Israel. He's the living God. They're the dead gods. They can't save. He can. But God's also holy in the sense that he's untouched by any evil. He never does wrong. He never sins. He never acts in duplicity. He only speaks truth. In him is light. There is no darkness in him at all. Now, if we're to be holy as God is holy, where do we begin? At the outset, it must mean that God called us to be separate from the rest of humanity. Think about what gave rise to this letter. Christians were treated as outsiders in the culture in which they lived, and consequently, they were being persecuted. Well, what's surprising about that? Nothing. God made them separate. He called them to be unlike the culture around them. And of course, that means that their morality is different from the wider culture. If the culture thinks that lying is sometimes necessary, Christians will say, well, it might be for you, but certainly not for us. We're different. We're holy. We're set apart. You know, the culture says sexual relations outside of marriage is fine. The Christians will say, it is for you, perhaps, but we're separate. We're different. We're called to be holy. And that's it. Christians don't wring their hands if they don't fit in. They say, we don't fit in because God didn't call us to fit in. So Peter has turned the page in this letter. He started telling persecuted believers they were born again to a living hope, and then he gets practical. Keep putting your hope on Jesus. Don't you be conformed to the lusts of this world and be holy because that's your specific calling. Thanks so much, John. You know, let me ask you this. Is it by chance Uh, even with our best intention to try and make the church attractive to the society around us, in some ways we've lost our attractiveness as as being set out as unique and different? if, If the attractiveness that we're looking for is somehow being entertaining and as entertaining as the world or something of that nature, uh, yeah, we're never going to out-entertain the world, and I don't think that's an attraction that we should pursue. But the attraction ought to be that, you know, the quiet, peaceful life that honors God, that is submissive to him, that loves all people, even our own enemies, that is incredibly attractive and will attract. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Under Pressure, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. June is back to the Bible Canada's fiscal year end. As such, it's a crucial month for the ministry financially. Despite the financial impact of the last couple of years, Back to the Bible Canada has still been able to provide sound Bible teaching and engagement resources, and even produce new ministry resources thanks to the loyal support of our listeners. This year, our fiscal year end target is $409,000. And to help us reach that, Several generous ministry supporters have graciously offered to match your donations this month up to $100,000. That means your gift has doubled the impact. We'd be so grateful if you might consider helping us achieve our financial target this fiscal year end. To make your gift today or for more information, call us at 1-800-799-9663. 
663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.